It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. This is episode one in a series that I have been anticipating for quite a long time. It is... I guess I could almost say that I was just praying right before we started, uh, as I always do before I give a, a session. And my prayer was that I feel like I'm in over my head, and yet I'm not in over God's head on this one. I'm, uh, I feel like what I'm trying to wrap my arms around is such a massive period of history, and so much was taking place. So to actually be able to get out of it the key things that are most useful for us as believers right now is a daunting task. Uh, you see, a couple clarifiers on this. Even though this is called Spiritual Lessons from Abe Lincoln's America, there's a couple things that immediately flash into our minds when we hear that. First of all, this is a series on Abe Lincoln. And even though Abe Lincoln will be brought up many, many, many times because he's a key character in this, and basically he's going to be symbolic of you and me in this. We're the, we're the ones wrestling today in a culture that is strangely similar, eerily similar to the season in which Abe Lincoln rose into his level of maturity and stepped into his position of leadership. And also the other thought that you could have uh, cycle through your mind is that this is going to be on the Civil War which is one of my fascination points. I'm very passionate about you know, studying the Civil War. I used to teach the Civil War. And yet I want to say that that isn't actually the focus of this either. So you could say, what, what is the good of this series? It's not on my favorite president, Abe Lincoln, and it's not on the Civil War. What? Now, I'm not saying it isn't on those things. I'm just saying that isn't actually the focus. It's the culture at the time when Abe Lincoln was stepping into office. That's what I'm interested in, because the similarities are very, very pertinent to us. And the way that Abe Lincoln is going to walk through his role in trying to lead and steer a nation that is sharply divided is very interesting to me, because in the church, I feel like I'm inheriting a similar situation. The grandeur of my position is far less, than Abe Lincoln's, and as it is probably for you too. I don't know that there's that many people at the level of responsibility of an Abe Lincoln that are probably, probably listening to this, uh, this uh, podcast, but we all have an assignment, and it's a challenging one right now, to be a leader, to be on the front lines, to be entrusted with leading people at a time when sharp divide is far more common than unity, it's important that we sort of begin to chew on these thoughts and digest them. So let's, let's embark. This first session, this part one, is called the 3630 line. Okay, so the 3630 line is something that, whether or not anyone in history really has that as a common phrase, it's going to become very important for us to sort of work through because it was a very, very specific line across the United States, and I will go through that in just a second, but it marks a division point, and that division is going to ultimately lead to a civil war. So the antebellum period, and I have some dates up on the screen, 1815 through 1861. Now, to give you some context, uh, you know, the nation, our nation uh, is newly born uh, in the end of the uh, 1700s. And so as we embark into the 1800s, we have an, an untested nation. You know, sure, we were tested in the Revolutionary War, but a lot of our ideas are now being tested. How our government is going to work? Is this constitution going to stand up under the pressure? And 1815 to 1861 is a, is a range of time. After the War of 1812 is over, it's typically uh, where, this is, where this period is measured from. But if you ever hear the term antebellum, that's what it's talking about. Ante meaning before, bellum meaning war or the fight or the act of belligerence. And so antebellum means before the war. I know it's a big fancy word for something that we could say uh, the before the war period or before the Civil War period. However, antebellum has a certain ring to it that has just sort of remained. This is what I want to dig into, is what was taking place, what caused the division, and how the division was handled. 
And I think it's going to become extremely interesting to all of us as we navigate through this to even see how the church was responding to the division. Because today we have our own unique issues. They are different than the issues back then. For instance, I don't think slavery is a big issue today. Now, we do have racial issues, and so it's not to diminish that. That is is still a front and center thing that uh, keeps being brought up. However, back then that was a primary issue. The issue of slavery was a massive issue in the culture. In this newly forming nation, when you have new states that are going to be forming, how are you going to allow those states to function? Are you going to allow them to be slave states if they wanted to? Or are you going to say, no more slave states, we've had enough of them? And of course, this is going to be the big issue. And the 3630 line is directly related to that issue. So I'm going to do something before we get started, and I'm going to introduce you to something that's going to be throughout the series. Now, The awkward thing for me is since I don't have the series all finished and battened up and and, uh, packaged, I may change some of these as we progress. The concepts are probably going to remain the same, but I may uh, change some of the terminology or the phraseology. But what I want to go through is sort of like a sneak peek into some of the things I'm going to be walking through. And I'm calling this the leadership secrets of Lincoln. I know some of you are saying, I thought this wasn't on Abraham Lincoln. It isn't directly, even though we will dive into who he was and and how he functioned in his day and age, which is very interesting, it's more understanding that we are being put in a similar position of responsibility. And I want us to sort of unearth some of the secrets that he learned or we learned by observing him in this antebellum period. So the leadership secrets of Lincoln. Number one, draw loving lines not hard lines. Of course, that's sort of the theme of this very first message that I'm giving, because what you're going to see is many people are drawing hard lines, and I'm going to say, how do we as Christians draw lines? Because we need to have firm conviction. We can't just waffle around. If the Bible says it, the Bible says it. So how do we deal with our lines? Number two, approach the nasty stuff like a Quaker. Some of these aren't going to make any sense to you, but that's part of the fun. Number three, never ever send the first draft. Number four, listen like everyone in the room is smarter than you. Number five, inspire a Clapham sect in your living room. Number six, define your hills to die on so you know where not to perish. Number seven, wrestle to establish that you're a stayer. Number eight, never forget the value of the small. Number nine, refuse to be intimidated by the big. Number 10, be prepared to punctuate your convictions with your life. Number 11, walk the tightrope like Blondin. And number 12, just keep the family together. All of those, even though you may not understand them right now, are going to become significant as we move forward. Now, again, disclaimer, uh, I may end up changing some of the phraseology, but the idea is if you were to look back after the series is over and go through it again, we'll we'll stand out uh, and I hope they impact us. So I have a map of the United States up on the screen, and this is what we would call the 3630 line. You see it's in green, and it goes from right under Missouri, under Kansas, under Colorado, under Utah, almost the bottom of Nevada, and then sort of halfway through California. Now, this is a line that is going to be created in 1820, and I'm going to go into that at a certain degree, but that's because the Louisiana Purchase, everything to the west of uh, the Mississippi River, uh, was, uh, was desiring to begin to form into statehood. There was a movement west. And as a result, as Missouri petitioned to become a state uh, in 1818, again, this is in the antebellum era, this is going to be one of the key issues that's going to spike ultimately the Civil War, Missouri wants to become a state, and most of the state wants it to be a slave state. And so we had anti-slave states and we had slave states at this time, and they were equal. And so the nation was balanced. But if Missouri becomes a slave state, just remember how our government works, that means Missouri is going to send two senators to the Senate, and now there will be more votes in favor of slavery than anti-slavery. So how do you think the anti-slavery states are feeling about this? It's like, no way can Missouri become a slave state. And so as a result, there's this tension that's ultimately going to be resolved, even though it wasn't truly resolved, in something known as the Missouri Compromise. And that's where that line is going to form, which I'll go into in just a second. 
So this is the 3630 line, and the key date is 1820. Now, the Civil War is going to start in 1861, so we're 41 years before it, and yet I'm saying that the seeds for that war and that great battle and that great divide happened long before. This wasn't just like a skirmish in, uh, in the Senate where someone got mad at, you know, a northern uh, senator got mad at a southern senator and everyone went to war. This is something that was almost like baked into our country before it started. And my next message is going to go into that. What happened before our nation even started that is going to lead ultimately to this fracas that we are enjoying uh, in the antebellum period? So I have a a star on what you would know if you know your uh, American geography as Missouri. And I also have a star on what you would know as Maine up in the top right. And so uh, what's going to happen in this Missouri compromise is... Henry Clay is going to propose uh, that, okay, let's accept Missouri as a slave state, but let's also take part of Massachusetts and split it into another state called Maine, and let's make that a free state. And so as a result, there'll still be a balance in the government. And then we'll draw a line called the 3630. It's an imaginary line, but it's along that, uh, that line. And everything north of that line is going to be free, and you cannot create a, cl- a slave state up there. And so that's going to create all sorts of tensions, if you could just imagine it. However, this was called a compromise, and it passes. So it's known as the Missouri Compromise. And so if you, you, know, you grow up in American uh, public schools, you're bound to hear about it somewhere along the line. I, I, you know, the homeschoolers out there, I'm, I'm assuming uh, they learn about this too. Uh, so here's a quote from Thomas Jefferson. So Thomas Jefferson is no longer the president, right? But he's still around, and he's around in 1818 uh, 18 through 1820 when all of this big debate is happening. And he says, The Missouri question, like a fire bell in the night, awakened and filled me with terror. I considered it at once as the knell of the Union. That would be like a bell that is rung uh, for a funeral. It is hushed indeed for the moment, but this is a reprieve only, not a final sentence. In other words, okay, we just came up with the Missouri Compromise, but that you could feel it in the air. This, isn't, this is only a temporary patch for an ever-growing problem. And of course, he is right. So in 1854, remember, the Civil War is going to start in 1861, we have an overturn of the Missouri Compromise. It's going to be deemed unconstitutional. And as a result, you're going to have this tension that is being awakened in the country where the arguments are that, hey, every state, according to our constitution, according to the way we've originally started this this nation, should be able to decide for themselves. Every individual should decide for themselves. The federal government shouldn't tell an individual what to do. How much more should they not tell a state what to do? And so the idea of states' rights is going to play into this, and it's going to ultimately lead to what we would understand as the Kansas-Nebraska Act. And so in the Kansas-Nebraska Act, that line, that 3630 line, is going to, in a sense, say everything above that line is now open for debate, and every state can make its own decision on if it's a slave state or not, depending on how many people vote when it first starts. And this is going to lead to all sorts of excitement uh, at that time. So this is a big, big deal when the Kansas-Nebraska Act is going to take place. And so Kansas and Nebraska, this zone of territory, is going to be under siege because now you're going to have slavery uh, uh, fans and you're going to have anti-slavery fans actually moving to the territory. You could just imagine how well they were getting along so that they could vote and sway that state in a direction of their ideology. So you can see this map. Uh, This is actually a really cool map if I could give you more detail. But what you see is all the green is open Louisiana uh, purchase territory. California at this time is red, which means it was a free state. And now every other state there is up for grabs. And so Kansas is going to be the next one on the docket. And this is going to lead to something called bleeding Kansas or bloody Kansas. I mean, Kansas is going to be a bloodbath because there's a fight over this territory. You already have a mini civil war taking place in Kansas in 1854. So the civil war, 1861, but what is going to lead to it? And this is what I'm going to try and lay some groundwork for so that we understand Abe Lincoln's America. What was it that he was inheriting? We know that there was debate. We know that there was division, but what was it and why was it there? And how was the church responding to it? 
So the antebellum period is going to be the period of study. And we have what I'm going to call the growing divide. And I have a question underneath that, irreconcilable differences. At the time, most people would say there is no way the North and the South can agree on this. So as a result, there is really no hope for our nation other than a war or a division. In other words, where you have a Southern uh, country and you have a Northern country. And so one of the big passion points of Lincoln is that this country needs to stay together. And there were a lot that felt that, that the security of our country long-term is that we actually stay united and don't allow anything to divide us. And so this is, this is a big deal at that time. So the two ways of doing this, the fool's way and the wise man's way. So the Bible is going to unpack for us two different methodologies for how we live our life. Now, all throughout the Bible, if you've ever heard me teach through discipleship, there's always twos. And so there's always, uh, it seems to be two characters like uh, Cain and Abel, and uh, then you have uh, Ishmael and Isaac, and then you have uh, Esau and Jacob, and then you have Saul and David. And God always is against the first, and he's for the second. Even the Bible is written in two parts, and you have an Old and a New Testament. You have Jesus known as the second man. The first man is Adam, and the second man is Jesus, even though there's 77 generations in between. In other words, God seems to hallmark these two, and there are two, light, dark, you know, death, life. And in the New Testament, Paul is going to enunciate this, and he's going to talk about flesh and spirit. Unless you be born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven, says Jesus. So in other words, we, we all have a propensity towards a first behavior. And in Proverbs, that's known as the way of the fool. And that, but there's another way in Proverbs that is enunciated, and that's the wise man's path, the way of wisdom. And so actually, actually we have to transition and transfer from the fool's behavior into the wise behavior. In the New Testament, we see this unfurled in and through the, the message of the gospel, where there's an invite to forsake and repent of our foolish behavior and to adopt Christ's behavior, which is wisdom. And so it's interesting, I'm going to go through just a series of quotes on the fool and the wise man, and just so you begin to see, when we apply it to this time in history, it also becomes very, very apropos to, uh, to apply it to our time in history. How should we be living? What would the fool do, and what would the wise man do? So the wise in heart will receive commands, but a prating fool will fall. That's Proverbs 10.8. The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but he who heeds counsel is wise. That's Proverbs 12, 15. And in Proverbs 14, 3, in the mouth of a fool is a rod of pride, but the lips of the wise will preserve them. Proverbs 14, 16, a wise man fears and departs from evil, but a fool rages and is self-confident. Proverbs 15, 7, the lips of the wise disperse knowledge, but the heart of the fool does not do so. Proverbs 17.10, rebuke is more effective for a wise man than a hundred blows on a fool. And Proverbs 29.9, if a wise man contends with a foolish man, whether the fool rages or laughs, there is no peace. Proverbs 29.11, a fool vents all his feelings, but a wise man holds them back. So the principle of the wise man, the same wisdom that works to help him govern his heart and mind is the same wisdom that helps him rule a nation. One of my favorite things about the Proverbs is this exact concept. You see, the Proverbs are the concept of a king instructing his son how to rule a kingdom. And yet here we are in you know, everyday Joe life, reading the Proverbs and applying it to our heart, our mind, the way we handle our family, the way we handle our finances. And is that wrong? Because, I mean, we're not ruling a nation. We're not ruling a nation, but we're being prepared to. You see, everything in the Proverbs is scalable. You could take it and apply it to your individual life and your individual thoughts. A thought that is anti-God is trying to creep into your thought life and be entertained inside the living room of your own thought life and your own mind. What should you do? You should be a wise man, and you should say no to that thought. However, 
when we learn this behavior in our thought life, in our emotions, and how we care for our body, it actually extends then to our marriage. And so if we are trained well with wisdom and we have wisdom for our individual body, then we have wisdom to care for a spouse. And if we care well for that spouse and that marriage, we are preparing to care well for a family. And if we care well for that family, as Paul notates, we are being prepared to care well for the church. And if a man doesn't care well for his family, guess what? He's not prepared to care for the church. And if a man is able to care for a church, guess what? He could care for entire communities. He could, he could care for entire nations. And, you know, if you want to keep extending that out, he could rule worlds. You see, I don't know what the eternal kingdom is going to have for us, but we're being prepared and it's scalable. If we become the wise man, if we choose to refuse the foolish way and we choose to adopt the wise way, we are being groomed to rule nations. And so, even though we aren't Lincoln, and even though our assignment may not be to lead a nation in this hour, we need to learn to rule the territory that we have been entrusted with wisdom. And that's a very, very important thing to note. So the 3630 line. I'm going to call that the hard line that sparks division. This is a difficult one for us because, you know, we're all living in this same era. As just about two years ago that the era of COVID-19 uh, emerged and to all of our shock has completely altered our world. And it's been a difficult one for us to know how to navigate forward with because, you know, like me, if you're like me, you're not a big fan of all of it. And it's, it's difficult because you could have convictions, but how do you wield your convictions? What would the wise man do? Because sometimes when you wield your convictions inappropriately, they could be accurate convictions, but they actually create more drama and more difficulty for your life and don't solve anything. At the same time, we know, biblically speaking, that there's a time to stand, even if it costs you your life, and it's the right thing to do. So, Lord, give us wisdom for this hour. Bleeding Kansas, 1854 through 1859. Now, remember, the Civil War is going to start uh, just after this. So, right before the Civil War, we have a miniature Civil War in Kansas. And it is such a debacle, and there's really no solution for it. Because once you open the floodgates and say, well, uh, Kansas can define itself, well, then everyone wants to rush to Kansas and get their vote in so that they can sway it. This was a sharp divide. The nation was genuinely terrified both directions. In the North, they were terrified of Kansas becoming a slave state. Because if it did, that would swing the entire government in the direction of, of, of pro-slavery. And those in the North, or I'm sorry, those in the South were genuinely concerned about the anti-slavery movement getting Kansas because what would happen? Well, so much of the economy of the South was built upon the need for slaves. So as a result, if it goes anti-slavery, then their whole livelihood, their whole culture could fall to pieces. So if you look at this and you get in everyone's shoes, you can sort of understand why there's a tension. You know, today, we likely have our position on things, and we, we have what could be hard lines drawn. I will never do this. This will never happen to me. And I'm not going to say that lines are bad. A 3630 line, I'm not exactly sure if it was a good idea or a bad idea. In other words, I do not lean towards slavery. I do not want to promote slavery. And so it's a difficult one for us in our modern era, where slavery is really not the issue, to look back at that time and see the South with any... Uh, compassion. And at the same time, it was their livelihood. It was the world they knew. And there are reasons why they functioned the way they did. Now, whether or not we want to make a comment about slavery and, and slaveholding, they had some interesting points. And that is, should the federal government come in and tell them how they should live their lives? Hey, this is none of their business. You know, what unites us isn't our uh, our conclusion on slavery, what unites us is that we have a common bond. If there's ever a common enemy that comes against our shorelines, we'll stand together and fight against it. But could you leave us alone in the meantime? So it leads to bleeding Kansas. And we have a few bleeding territories in our uh, nation right now. So let's look at the great debate at this time. And I'm going to say statehood and slavery. So I have two different uh, opinions that are sharply in disagreement one with the other. And it's un it would be inappropriate for me to call them right and left issues because they don't always fit that way. 
but they were sharp divide. And in that, at that time, it was still right and left, but it's not the same or transferable exactly to our day and age. So Stephen Douglas, if you remember the Lincoln-Douglas debates, he's going to be the arch rival of Lincoln, and Lincoln uh, is, and so he's a huge voice out of Illinois at this time, and he is going to propose something. He's going to propose to remove the division, or that sharp line, uh, remove the division by allowing each state the ability to decide for themselves whether or not slavery should be legal, and that is, was something known as popular sovereignty. The abolitionist platform, those that are against slavery, had a different thought, and that is this. They proposed to protect the honor and dignity of the life of each and every African American by passing a law to express, the, express this moral rightness. We could call that, they wanted to legislate morality. They had a moral conviction that the life of every uh, person was equal before God, and it should never be put enslaved. You know, most of us are going to raise our hand and say amen to that, right? And yet, you have a tension here because... How are we so? Are we supposed to legislate morality? That's one of the big questions that uh, always comes up in a situation like this. The South is saying, or those that are uh, maybe leaning towards having slaves are saying, "Hey, isn't that our decision? Aren't we responsible for that?" So let us make our own choice. Now that's going to lead us into another one, which is the idea of pro-choice and pro-life that we face today. It's a similar argument. And so here we have the great debate today is the life of the unborn. And listen to, and I'm going to divide this left and right because it is a left and right issue on this particular one. The left argues to allow a woman the right to choose. It's her body after all. I mean, that's the same argument as popular sovereignty. The right, listen to this, they fight to protect the life of the unborn by passing a law to express this moral rightness. We want to change this at the legal level so that a child in our nation would be protected, just like a slave could have been protected back then. Interesting tensions and very similar in their makeup. Even the, the idea of saying, hey, I have the right to choose. This is my body. That's exactly what the states were saying back then. So here's another great debate. We'll call it gay marriage, the, 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 the debate over how we define marriage. The left argued to allow two people in love to get married and share in the tax benefits of legal marriage. The right argued to protect the sanctity of marriage by passing a law to express this moral rightness, or I should say, to not allow a law to be passed, to question the moral rightness of this. Our nation has always considered this the way it works between a man and a woman, and as a result, when the left came in and, and proposed that uh, two people that are in love should be able to define this for themselves and still share the same legal benefits. Well, we have it now, and what you see is sharp divide, okay? So if you could just start to climb into this, I mean, just on these issues, you recognize our nation has similar divide points. Now, here's an interesting one for us, the great debate, a mandatory vaccine. So you have the pro-vax crowd, which argues to legislate morality and force those that have a conscionable issue with the vaccine to get pricked anyway. This is very interesting because what you see is, and I would say it's really not a liberal conservative issue because there are conservatives that are really pro-vaccine and there's a liberal, did I say that right? There are conservatives that are pro-vaccine, there are liberals that are anti-vax. So it's not really a, a true uh, draw a line down the middle type of a thing, but it's interesting because the pro-vaxxers are basically like wanting to legislate morality and say, hey, we should force everyone to agree with what we deem a moral decision, and that is to protect our nation, you should receive a vaccine. And then you have the anti-vaxxers, what are they arguing? It's like, hey, this is my body. I should be able to choose what happens to it. So we have the same argument over and over and over again, and even though it's a different issue, it's the same division point. Now, that shouldn't startle us because the devil specializes in division. And obviously, he's been able to get a lot of mileage out of this one argument, which is one of the reasons. I mean, I literally released four different sermons this last year called The Vaccine Dilemma, part one, part two, part three, and part four. And my whole agenda wasn't to try and convince someone of one side or the other of this argument. It was to say, we as the body of Christ cannot be played by this. Generations previous to us have always been played by this, and they've drawn sharp lines, and they've gone to war over it. We will not do that, O church of Jesus Christ. This is not the wise man's way. So hard lines versus loving lines. Is there a difference? You see, 
this is going to be one of the tension points that Abe Lincoln is going to be struggling with even as he enters his presidency is, is he, because he wasn't pro-slavery, but to say he was anti-slavery would be correct, but if he presented himself that way, he's going to actually create a greater divide. And so how he works through this to actually listen to the South, to try and understand the circumstance is really a, a, an amazing picture. Now, they did go to war, okay? So to say that you know Abe Lincoln's going to stem off war, well, he didn't. And I don't know that I have the power in my generation to do, do it either. But there is something about the individual where am I going to war inside of my own mind and heart? You see, that's ultimately where I want to get to in this series is how are we handling this on the inside? Am, have I already gone to war in my heart? where I'm ready to see my enemy destroyed, where I'm ready to see them removed from this earth, because if they weren't around any longer, then we would have a better country. That's exactly the attitude that was being sponsored by, by, by the, back then. And so as a result, the North wanted the South eliminated. They wanted them killed. The South wanted the North eliminated. They wanted them killed. And suddenly this nation would be, would be a paradise. Utopian... Uh, viewpoint of saying, if those that oppose you and those that have an opposite vantage point were removed, then utopia or paradise follows. It isn't how it works, guys. So in fact, there is something amazing about having those differences around us. And even though those differences can be sharp, there is a way of still having lines in our life and convictions in our life without having those convictions bop someone in the nose. So drawing up what we're going to call loving lines. How do you live with biblical convictions yet still love and labor alongside those that do not hold your biblical convictions? Wow, is that a key question. I think we are all struggling with that exact thing right now. Oh, so what am I supposed to do? Keep my mouth shut? Am I not supposed to say anything? Am I just supposed to, you know, appease everyone around me? How am I, as a believer, supposed to live right now? And that's the key question. What we need is to not respond out of the first man state, which is the flesh. The flesh is easily incited. It's easily angered. It easily gets bitter and resents. It easily wants to go to war. The spirit man is very different. It's long-suffering. It's patient. It can be slapped on one cheek and turn the other. You see, it is made of a different substance. It functions different than first man. And as a result, it can endure great challenge without falling to pieces. It doesn't split. It doesn't allow division in its life. It continues to love its enemy even when they spit in the face. And so as a result, it is able to showcase a stronger point of victory, a stronger answer to life's dilemmas. The zealots versus the disciples, law or love. It's interesting to study the zealots in the first century when the Romans have taken over uh, Israel and how these uh, parties are going to function. So we, you know, many of you know about the Pharisees, you know about the Sadducees, but the Zealots were a very real contingent as well. And they would have been the staunch conservatives of their day. I mean, not just the Pharisees. The Pharisees were conservatives as well, but the Zealots just took it to a whole new level. And they were willing to kill to preserve and protect the law of God in their culture. And so it was, a, it was a very serious thing for the zealots. And so what's interesting is for many of us, if we were to look at these zealots, we might, of course, feel a little awkward saying, yay, zealots, because we know that Jesus didn't come in and just pat the zealots on the back when he showed up. However, they have something that you have to say is admirable. And all throughout the Old Testament, you're going to see it. When David stands up and says, is there not a cause? And is willing to take down Goliath. When Phineas grabs his javelin and you know, takes out the opponent of Israel and removes the sin uh, in its midst, God is applauding that. And so as a result, you can understand where the zealots would come from. It's like it's actually reasonable to understand this is the way God wants us. He wants us to be righteous. He wants to be right with the law. And if someone is violating the law, we have to do whatever it takes to make sure we maintain that high standard. So the interesting thing is Jesus is going to come along and say, no matter how hard you try and keep that high standard, you're going to fail in it. I have a better way. You see, Jesus, when he builds his disciples, he doesn't build zealots. He builds disciples. 
he builds miniature pictures of himself. And the way that Jesus handled it is just very different than a zealot. A zealot would go and kill. Jesus is willing to lay down his life. A zealot would go and snub, you know, those that are its opponents. Jesus reaches out across that line and extends mercy, patience, kindness. Whoa, so how does this work? You see, there's a difference between law as your motivation and love. You see, when you function in a first-man state and you try and draw on your own vigor to handle the situation, you're going to handle it with law or a legal answer. When you are a believer, you recognize that you, you can go far beyond just a legal solution to what is going on, and you can reach up into the heavens and grab hold of the power of God, and it expresses itself in a human body via love. And when we love in this body on this earth, it changes things. It alters the course of history. We actually have a secret to changing the world. And it's not just through legislating morality. By the way, I'm not against if our House of Representatives and Senate decided to vote and to support the protection of the unborn, I would be very happy. However, whether or not that happens does not change the fact that inside of Eric Ludi, I do not have an antipathy and a hatred towards those that are killing babies in the womb. I hate the sin, but I love them. And I want to pursue them and see them saved and rescued by the loving mercies of Jesus Christ. And so as a result, the way we function is very different than a zealot. We function as disciples. What is the most virtuous action? To the zealot, it was to not violate the commandments, to be right with the Jewish law. And you have to commend them. That's, that's a very interesting standard, a very uh, good ideal. But to the disciple, it's different. What was, their, what was defined as the most virtuous action was to love and to be righteous in Christ through faith. This was the highest form of living, was to function in love and to find their righteousness by faith in Christ's righteousness. And that was actually the way that they truly could honor God. God's saying, hey, I've come to this earth and given you a firsthand account of what I actually think about all of this. Follow me. I will teach you how to do this. And that's exactly what a Christian does. This is what we have. So Paul, at the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 12, right before we're going to enter into 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the love chapter, he is going to finish by saying, I show you a more excellent way. And this is, in a sense, we could summarize the entire New Testament this way. We can describe the entire life of Jesus Christ this way. He comes and he stands in front of a room of zealots, and he says, guys, I show you a more excellent way. What I want to do is I want to come to those of the abolitionist movement who were, I mean, we, we want to applaud them. We really do. They're heroes to many of us uh, you know, today, those that were willing to stand for the rights of the African-American and say, hey, look, they have value in the eyes of God. Do not diminish that. Do not besmirch that. That's good. Yay. To stand in front of all those abolitionists and say, hey, I'd like to show you guys a more excellent way. It's not just fighting. It's not just clubbing people. It's not just votes in the House of Representatives and the Senate. But there is even something greater that we can do as believers. And I know it, does, it sounds sort of weak and sort of wimpy to say, and what is that, a more excellent way? Paul is going to say, I want to show you a more excellent way. And then he's going to lead into this chapter and say, it's love. Now, we can chuckle at that and say, yeah, yeah, as if love can really change the world. But that's because you don't understand. This is what changed the world in the first century. This is the secret. If we are stuck in the middle of an antebellum period, we need the real stuff. Not what some singer, you know, with a sappy, soupy voice is going to sing a love song with. That's not love. Love that truly considers someone else's highest good. Love that is willing to lay down its life that someone else could find life. That's when you allow God to cultivate that in you and through you, it changes you, it changes those close to you, it changes their, those close to them. It has a ripple effect through the world. Paul the Apostle also says at the conclusion of 1 Corinthians 13, out of all these wonderful acts, even hope, faith, and love, the greatest of these is love. So we're talking about the greatest behavior. The highest form of human living and acting is love. 
And of course, Jesus in John 13, 35 says the famous statement, by this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So in other words, it seems to be the chief behavior. Jesus himself is saying, you want to know my disciples? It's not that they just stand for the commandments and that they're willing to kill someone that doesn't. And it's not just that you can repeat the Bible and you have it all memorized. It's not that you, your theology or your doctrine is perfect. It's that you love. Isn't that fascinating? Because that's not how we think. That's not the church that we grew up in. And it, fa- it sounds sort of weak and flimsy too, because you know we've seen those love Christians out there that are like, oh, we just want to love. And it's some kind of rainbow wrapped around them and they don't really understand what love is. That love isn't just sappy and soupy. Love has a backbone to it too, but it is a purposeful intention to seek another's benefit. It is not just wrapped up in our views, our convictions. It's willing to listen and heed and hear and then reach. If you're a missionary and you're moved by love, you go into a culture that oftentimes hates God. That's the reason you're there. And yet you don't reject that culture. You love them. And then you take the truth of God's word and you study their culture and you translate the word of truth into their culture. Why? So that they could see it, so they could know Jesus like you do. Your love is going to not cause you to throw them out, but to pursue them. And you will leave everything to go reach them. That's just how Christianity has always functioned. Love is the secret weapon. Considering others is more important, ensuring that no one is cut off from God as far as it depends on you. The order of operations. So I've taught on the order of operations, the algebraic order of operations many times. It's known as PEMDAS, and those of you that uh, you know, have little flashbacks uh, to school, your schooling days when you hear that, P-E-M-D-A-S. So parentheses, exponents, multiplication, division, addition, then subtraction. So you get a complex algebraic equation. And what you have to learn to do is work through that complex problem in a certain order. And it's the order of operations. And so if there's parentheses, that should tell you something immediately if you're approaching approaching that equation. Start in the parentheses. If there's exponents, that should say something to you. We as Christians oftentimes don't have an order of operations. We don't place love in its proper place. We place doctrine, we place rightness, we place correctness, we place righteousness, we place holiness, all wonderful things. They're all a part of what God is doing, but we need to recognize that we start with love. And when we start with love, we're going to get the right answer. If you have an algebraic equation, you start with the wrong operation. It could be that you are excellent with that operation. Say it's subtraction. And you're like, I'm really good at subtracting. You get your subtraction 100% correct. And guess what? You still get the problem wrong. Isn't it weird that you could be 100% right in your subtraction and still get the overall equation wrong? How does that work? And yet that's what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 13. You could do this. You could do this. You could do this. You could do this. But if it's in the wrong order and it's not out of love, it's empty. It's hollow. It's like a gong, empty gong. You see, we don't want to give the empty gong version of Christianity. We want to win this thing. We want to change the world in which we live. So the order of operations, it's strange, but you can be a 100% right and 100% wrong at the same time. Our goal as believers, we want to be right with the truth and right in behavior. Both and. We have Christians that sit in their dusty studies and are excellent with their doctrine and stink in love. And yet, when it all comes down to it, how will you know a disciple of Jesus Christ? By their love. And so as a result, let's not just be right with the truth and wrong in our behavior, or I don't know if it's possible to be right in your behavior and wrong with the truth, but we want both and. We want a two-handed Christianity. We want balance in that, where we are excellent with the words of Scripture, but we live them out the way God has asked us to live them. So the question, what is the highest form of behavior? What is the Christ action in the moment? These are really fascinating questions I have up on the screen right now. Does he want us to draw the sword? Remember David? Is there not a cause? He sees Goliath boasting Uh, against the God of Israel, boasting against the Israelites. It's like, hey, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he would dare defy the armies of the living God? We're supposed to draw a sword? 
How about this? Does he want us to go silent as a lamb unto slaughter? Well, there's examples of that too. How about Jesus, where he didn't even open his mouth, but he went unto slaughter silent? Oh, that's a tension right there. Does he want us to stand up and do something? Remember Phineas? He did something, and God applauded it. And then we have Hezekiah. Does he want us to be still and know that he is God? And God's saying, let me fight for you. You stand still. Hold your position, but I will win this for you. Ah, uh, what are we supposed to do? So look at my answer. The answer is yes. That really helps, doesn't it? You see, we are supposed to draw a sword, but not always the same sort of sword. In other words, it's not a physical sword. Our battle isn't against flesh and blood. However, we do fight a battle, and we have weapons of warfare that are mighty to the pulling down of strongholds, but those strongholds are spiritual ones. And so, yes, we're supposed to pull a sword. Yes, we're supposed to fight, but it's a different sort of fight. And how about when it comes to Jesus? Are we supposed to go silent as a lamb unto slaughter? Yes. However, again, it's an inner man thing. Being silent in certain situations is because the Holy Spirit goes and closes our mouth and says, take it, Eric. When you're falsely accused, boy, do you want to defend yourself? And Jesus might say, silent. You see, there are certain things that are happening around us that it's best maybe not even to supply commentary on. Boy, do I want to give commentary sometimes. And God says, oop, silent. You see, there is a Phineas moment where we need to rise up and do something. And then there's also the Hezekiah moment where God says, stand still, I will do it. The reason I have to say yes to all of these is because they all fall in the rubric, the pattern, the, the, the warp and woof of what God leads us to in his Holy Spirit. There's a time to stand. There's a time to sit. There's a time to rush forward. There's a time to pull back. What matters is that we heed the Spirit of God. And that is always going to be governed in love. Paul in Corinth, division everywhere, what does a leader do? Abe Lincoln in America, in 1861, division everywhere, what does a leader do? So Paul has this famous line, 1 Corinthians 2.2, I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. You see, Paul is going to isolate down, bake down the most salient, central, important truth that matters and he's going to say, this is what I'm coming to you with. Oh, Paul knows other things, and yet he's going to determine to not know anything but that which matters most of all. And for us, we need to sort of land that. We need to know what matters most of all in this culture. Because I guarantee you, I start laying out some political statements, and it'd be like traps for your soul right now. And you say, oh, that matters. Oh, that matters. Oh, that matters. Make sure you know what matters most. Make sure you have your order of operations set. Because Paul's saying... Jesus matters most, and what Jesus did on that cross is what matters. This is what we must build our life around. This is what this world needs. Even more than legislated morality, even if it's righteous, even if it's truth, let's not go in the direction of just being zealots. Let's go in the direction of being disciples. Let's change this world on our knees. Let's change this world through the power of love and through the power of the gospel. Let's do what good Christians do. The North Star, it's that which is bigger than any other issue. So all of us need to get out our compasses and we need to figure out what is North so we can establish true North in our spiritual lives in a time of great fog, of great uh, consternation. David Reynolds, who is a historian, says, witnessing reformers on all sides who took extreme positions, Lincoln stuck close to the center. Unlike many other centrists, he was neither dull nor indecisive. It's a very, very interesting thing to know how to walk politically, and I'm praising God every day I'm not in politics, but Lincoln's going to be called a centrist. I don't know if that's a positive term to any of us today. However, there were extremes on both sides that were leading to war, and so he had to learn to walk a tightrope, and he had to learn to hear both sides without compromising his own personal convictions and his stance. When he says something with his mouth, he needs to back it with his life. How do you do this? David Reynolds also said, in a letter written on April 14, 1865, the last day of his life, Lincoln said that he wanted to create a union of hearts and hands as well as of states. That had long been his goal. As Walt Whitman, Lincoln's most sensitive observer, declared unionism, in its truest and amplest sense, formed the hard pan of his character. Now, I'm going to give you a little foreshadow into sort of my take. 
And I'm going to give a quote. It's not really a quote, but it's sort of a taking from what Walt Whitman said and sticking my name in it. Unionism, in its truest and amplest sense, formed the hard pan of Eric Ludy's character. I am not desiring union with just anyone and everyone just because that sounds like a good thing. I want union in the church. I want those of us that believe in Jesus Christ, that hold to him as our Savior, that know that he's the solution to all this, to work together. And I believe one of the number one things the devil wants to do is divide the church. When the church gets divided, everything else divides right along with it. We are where God wants to start. This is where it, the change is going to begin. Within each of us, with our, in our inner mind, our inner life, are we wanting to fight battles with people or are we wanting to stand against spiritual powers and win battles for people? You see, we are supposed to be used by God to change the world, to see healing and wholeness come. The enemy has come to steal, to kill, and to destroy. But Jesus says, but I have come that they may have life and that more abundant. What have I come for? I want this nation around me to have life and that more abundant. I want them to find Jesus. I don't want them to just run into a conservative Republican who happens to be a Christian, who votes, you know, in support of this, 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 this causes. I want them to discover a Christian who has an ear for them, who has an eye for their need, and is willing to lay down my life to see them thrive. What does that look like? That's what I want to explore in this series. Lord Jesus, I hand this entire series to you, and I just say, Lord, I need you to Breathe into it. I need you to draw out practical applications for each of us. Lord, I need you to stir us out of our lethargy, especially when we get stuck in the politics of it and we stop behaving as Christians and we start justifying our angst under different banners and different codes. Lord, we are first and foremost believers in Jesus Christ and we have been given a map for how we ought to live. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that we would allow our life to conform around that instead of around our culture, lest we behave in the same manner the church did in the antebellum period. Lord, we ask for this grace in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder episodes are released every day, Monday through Friday, from our campus in Windsor, Colorado. And our weekly sermon is delivered live at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings with a delayed live stream available at noon Mountain Time. Go to ellerslie.com forward slash daily to get all the details. Thanks for listening.